Well, hello, and welcome back to the Tim Masso podcast. Thank you for joining me. It's a new year, and we're getting the podcast back on track. I hope everyone's sticking to his New Year's resolutions. My resolution this year is to learn more about watches, and I learn something new every day. Sometimes it's history, sometimes it's specs, sometimes it's pricing, but my goal is to learn more about watchmaking specifically this year. I'd love to know your watch resolution. Send me a wrist chat at mondaymailbag at thewatchbox.com for my Monday show. And then along with the photo, let me know what your watch resolution is for 2022. Okay, so as 2022 dawns, we're going to be seeing new watches. And even though the post-Basel world watch landscape includes new watch debuts all year long, we're still going to see a crush of new watch releases between January and April because, among other things, Watches and Wonders Geneva has reconstituted the old watch shows, partly Baselworld, partly SIHH, into one event that, COVID permitting, will take place in late March, early April. So we're going to see most of the new model debuts, at least the big ones, the headliners, over the next four months. With that said, I'm looking back at the watches that have surprised me most over the last seven years that I've been in the watch industry. Now, some of these watches are watches that were never on my radar, or the variations on watches that were never on my radar, and the new models, or complete novelties, uh, made me look at the brand or the variant in a way I didn't in the past. I'm going to start chronologically with the first of these watches back in 2010, a watch that surprised me, and all these are good surprises, by the way, guys. I like to stay upbeat. I'm not going to say, the watch that surprised me most, because it sucked. No, that's not the way I am. Everyone knows a bad watch when he sees it. I don't need to pile on. So, the, JL, the JLC Duomet from Chagere Lecoult, it came out in 2007, initially in rose gold, platinum, and yellow gold. And I loved the idea of the Dual Met, which was inspired by an 1880s minute-repeating pocket watch chronometer from JLC. It was built originally on a Victor Piguet Abauch, and JLC built the minute-repeating chronometer pocket watch on top of that dual-barrel Abauch. And so we had two mainspring barrels uh, providing power for both the time as well as the complications. The idea being that even as we added complications, we wouldn't diminish the amplitude of the balance or the power reserve of the watch. So this was an ambitious thing that wasn't really possible in series production back in the 1880s. But JLC had this watch in its Heritage Gallery Museum. And in the early 2000s, it began to consider wristwatch adaptations of this dual drivetrain idea. All of this culminating in the Duomet Chronograph of 2007. And the Chronograph was a very technically impressive watch that was maybe a little bit too formal for its own good. And by that, I mean it looked a lot like a Longa. It was large at 42 millimeters with stepped out lugs, a broad cylindrical case with a conical bezel, a broad dial with a frosted texturing, and the highlight, a spectacular movement in German silver uh, that was finished to a standard unlike any other JLC in its price range. It really was a showcase. The problem was that huge case in colored gold 
and the austerity of the Platinum. The Platinum was your only bet. There was a standard gray dial model, and then there was a boutique special model with a white dial. And so you had two different versions of the Platinum, but both of them were basically white metal, grayscale dial, and they looked like expensive dress watches. They looked like an expensive longa, and every longa save the Odysseus is a dress watch. The yellow gold model, in my opinion, was the most attractive with an eggshell dial that had a lovely off-white color to it, and the yellow gold case wasn't altogether unattractive, but at 42 millimeters, it was too big for a colored gold watch, and I felt the same way about the rose gold, which left me with one hugely expensive platinum option that I thought was both too expensive and too austere, and then two colored gold models that needed to be about two millimeters smaller for me to really consider them. All that changed in 2010. That was the year my dream Duomet arrived because I had always wondered what the platinum model would look like with a black dial. And in 2010, in 200 pieces in white gold, JLC answered my prayers. I saw that watch when I was in the Navy, and at the time, with a retail price of $50,000, I was nowhere near attaining that kind of a goal. But I started saving, and I never forgot the shocking first images I saw of that watch. Black dial, white gold, rose gold hands, black granular dial surfacing, white gold case, gray gold, because JLC uses gray gold, not white gold, which meant it had a lovely warm tone to it that the platinum version didn't have. They weren't the same color, both white metal, but not the same color. And I never forgot that white gold Duomet chronograph. So four years later, when I turned 30, with a lot of saving and advanced planning, I bought that white gold Duomet. And a watch that to me had seemed too formal, too large for colored gold, too expensive to ever attain, became mine. And I loved that watch. And I wore it constantly for four years. And though I did eventually sell it, that was part of a reboot of my watch collecting generally when I sold off all of my JLCs except my vintage Snowdrop, which is a 1970s Memovox wrist alarm from JLC. So that white gold Duomet took a watch that was either too austere or too big for colored gold and made it perfect. Black dial, white metal case, and a limited edition to boot. It was the first Duomet I ever saw that had a dial as attractive as its movement. Now, moving forward, I should mention that in 2013, I was pretty sour on Romain Jerome. They seemed like I don't know, just a mountain of hype built around very basic movements and sold at high prices. But they came out with a watch that I really thought was pretty cool, and it was called the Spacecraft. And indeed, it was very cool. It was an angular, faceted, almost modern take on a 70s scrolling time driver's watch. If you can imagine something a little bit more angular than a Gerard Perigo 9931 casquette, that was the spacecraft. But there was something about it, the size, the angularity. I couldn't love it, but I liked it because it was a jump hour. It was a driver's watch with scrolling time that you could read at an angle with your hand on the wheel and your wrist oriented toward your face. It had a jump hour module by Agenor, which in addition to creating an edition of the Harry Winston Opus series, 
was well known as a purveyor of complications to the haute de gamme of the industry. They've done work with everyone from Harry Winston to MBNF. And to see that kind of watchmaking in a Romagerome, even if the base movement was a Salida, I was very impressed by the look of it, the function of it, and the fact that they went out and they got a super premium module to pop on top of the base automatic. But again, I didn't love the look of it. I liked the idea of it. I liked the concept. Everything came together in 2015 when Romagerome took the same Ajnor module and automatic base and repackaged it with a design by Alice Silberstein, and it became the subcraft. Everything that I didn't like about the style of the spacecraft, the size, the angularity, the harshness, the severity, was toned down in the almost biomorphic organic curves of the subcraft. This was tapered sensuous, pebble-like, gorgeous, almost worthy of the likes of, I mean, Laurent Ferrier could do no better. It was that good. And it was the beginning of the commercial revival of Alain Silberstein, not as a watchmaker in his own right, but as a collaborator and a designer. And so to have his imprimatur and that gorgeous organic style wrapped around the Agenor jump hour module, it all came together and I was in love. Now the watch was expensive at over $22,000, but these days pre-owned, they go for about 10 grand and they're rare. The subcraft was made in two editions in titanium, one black titanium and one media blasted titanium. Both of them were media blasted matte finished, but one was raw tie and one was DLC blackened. I go for the raw titanium for better durability, but my goodness, what a dream. The only Romagerome that ever had me coveting its possession, the Romagerome subcraft by Alas Silberstein. And it's an absolute pleasure to this day. People always ask, where can I get a watch these days that's horologically interesting, a significant design, rare and affordably priced, a watch that depreciates rather than appreciate, the subcraft is your watch. Okay, jumping forward, that was in 2015. Rewind a little bit to 2012, and Hublot had launched a technology, a materials technology they called Magic Gold. And the idea was pretty simple. Start with the purest 24-karat gold, and as part of a variety of steps, create a foam-like matrix out of the gold and infuse it with ceramic. Combine these two things with heat treatment, and in theory, you would get a gold that was hallmarkable, an 18 carat, and could still be melted back down into gold, but which was also almost 1,000 Vickers hard. So if you imagine standard stainless steel, which is about 225 to 250 Vickers, that's stainless steel. Zin U-boat steel is about 350 Vickers and the hardest ceramic is going to be 1,200 to 1,500 Vickers. So you're talking about an almost ceramic-like hardness on an 18-karat gold, and I was in love with the color of it because, to my eye, it looked more like bronze than gold. I could never live with a big gold hublot, but that lovely gold-bronze color in matte finish with a media-blasted surface, sign me up. I was intrigued, but I wasn't smitten. That came in... 2000 and I believe it was 2017 
we got the Hublot Big Bang Mechaten Magic Gold, and it was a 200-piece limited edition. And yes, it was all those things that make Hublot obnoxious. It was expensive at a retail price over $34,000, $34,600. It was big at 45 millimeters. It had a case that even in that late evolution was still obviously a half spoof, half plagiarism of the Audemars Piguet Royal Oak Offshore. But there was something about that Hublot Big Bang Mecca 10 full gold. I'm a popular man, as you can hear, I'm in demand. But there was something about that Mecca 10 full gold that just, it got me. And here's why. I was in love with the Mecca 10 when I first saw it at Basel World in 2016. It's basically, for those who played with Meccano in Europe or a Rector set in the United States, it's basically the look of a homemade project built out of a Rector set and then miniaturized and placed inside a watch. So the dial was also the movement. And this Hublot caliber, the HUB-1201, was exactly what the name implied. It was like Meccano, hence Mecca 10, and a 10-day power reserve. An enormous 10-day power reserve with not one, but two power reserve indicators. So a manual wind watch, it had a rack and pinion system that drove a two-day power reserve. So when you got within 48 hours of exhausting the power reserve, a little red dot would appear on the dial. Now, that also drove, in turn, a 10-day power reserve that would tell you exactly how many days of reserve you had, regardless of the state of wind. And the clincher for me was that this watch, which I already enjoyed, was being offered in magic gold. And I mentioned to you that it doesn't look like gold. It's basically a matte bronze aesthetic. And I think gold, when it's in a large scale, should never be polished. And so Hublot had the good sense to not polish this. The rest of the watch featured quick-release lugs that allowed me to rapidly detach the strap. If I want to put on a leather strap or a rubber strap or a textile strap, I've got that option. And the watch is 100 meters water-resistant, which is very important to me, because with a watch like that, that's 45 millimeters, huge and aggressive, and designed not to scratch, I want to be able to swim with that watch, shower with that watch, wash the dog and garden with that watch. And this watch allowed me to do all of that. Now today, these watches are largely forgotten, long out of production. It's a cool and below the radar kind of Hublot tech. You don't think of them as a movement-centric company, but this is an in-house movement of extraordinary caliber and character. And you don't think of Hublot as an innovator in discretion with gold, but this magic gold, it just looks like the bronze on a Panerai Bronzo. It doesn't look like gold, and yet it's real 18 karat and hallmarked. So for me, I was shocked at how much I loved the Hublot Mecca 10 Magic Gold Full Gold. So sue me, I think the thing was awesome. Okay, stepping forward now, we're talking about 2017 and one of the strangest watches Omega had ever released to date. If I racked my brain, I couldn't think of Omega previously doing a world time watch before Omega launched the Aquaterra World Timer in platinum. It was a limited edition in 2017 that was 43 millimeters in platinum with a world time complication 
built on a dial that combined media-blasted platinum, grand faux enamel, and yellow gold in a bizarre 87-piece limited edition. I can't, for the life of me, determine what it is about the number 87 that was significant to Omega, but it stuck out and I remembered it, not just because of the weird edition number, but because the watch was such a revelation. The movement, caliber 8939, even included a solid rose gold balance bridge, a rare inclusion of solid precious metal bridge components on a non-FP Journe watch. So here I am with an 87-piece platinum, platinum dial, enamel dial, world time omega with a partially 18-carat rose gold coaxial chronometer movement. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm scratching my head. I'm like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it came out of left field. When you think Seamasters, you think James Bond and the Diver 300 meter from the Brosnan era. Or you think Planet Ocean from the Daniel Craig era. Or maybe you think of the Brobdenagian Ploprof and its outrageous wrist stance, or the high value of the Railmasters. A lot of folks, at least in the West, it seems, don't think of the Aquaterra, which seems to play better in Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, and mainland China. And so to use that as the platform for this, effectively, almost like a fusion of an Omega and a Patek Philippe, it was a shock. And it shocks me to this day. Now, there was a logic behind what they were doing, as Omega later launched in 2019 a stainless steel version of the Aquaterra World Timer. This one with a slightly different movement number, 8938, without the rose gold, but just as technically intriguing and still just as attractive, much more affordable at 8900 US dollars on the strap. Remember, if you wanted to get the World Timer in platinum, it cost $48,600 for an Omega. Then again, you'll never see another one. That is its own kind of good value. And it was the most shocking Omega watch debut that I can recall in my living memory. Perhaps if I were around in 1994 to experience the first of the central tourbillon watches, I might feel differently, but the Aquaterra World Timer in platinum with enamel absolutely threw me for a loop, and I'm still head over heels in love with it, in spite of being a big 43-millimeter precious metal watch. All right, we're going to turn the clock forward yet again, this time to 2019, an anniversary that I thought wouldn't be marked, but the 50th anniversary of Gerald Genta, not the man, but the manufacturer. In 1969, jewelry designer Gerald Genta, who also designed watches, but as a minority of his time and attention, he founded his own watch brand in the Valais du Jeu. And over the years, ownership of that brand was initially Gerald Genta, and then shared between Gerald Genta and Daniel Roth, and then sold to Hourglass, a upscale retailer out of uh, East Asia, and then 2000 sold to Bulgari. And for a while, Bulgari, which was just getting its feet, its footing in high-end watchmaking, let Gerald Genta and Daniel Roth operate as independent businesses within Bulgari. But by 2010, they were ready to subsume Gerald Genta and do away with the Gerald Genta and Daniel Roth branding. So for one year, 2010, the old models from Genta and Daniel Roth were labeled Bulgari at the top with 
Gerald Janta or Daniel Roth branding as a sort of subscript. And for 2011, that was gone. Everything was just Bulgari branded. And I thought that was the end of it. But for 2019, they recognized the, the 50th anniversary of the high horology brand at the source of models like the Octofinissimo Torbion minute repeater and automatic. And so they created the Gerald Genta 50th anniversary piece. Now, if we want to be precise, it was the Bulgari Gerald Genta 50th anniversary watch. And it was stunning. 41 millimeters in platinum and very expensive. It was a revival of the by retrograde jump hour, the arena by retrograde jump hour, a watch with an emblematic Gerald Genta complication. So you had a retrograding date, a retrograding minute display, and a jump hour. Now, the original retro jumps back in the 90s and 2000s, uh, at the lower end, they would have been powered by ETA base movements. And if they were by retro jump hours in the higher end part of the catalog, they would have been powered by Gerard Perigot uh, 3300 series automatics with a fascinating gold gilding and engine turned finish. But the point is that you would get either a basic automatic or an upscale automatic, but only the module would be done by Gerald Genta. Well, for the Gerald Genta anniversary piece, they created a BVL 300 base with the old Gerald Genta jump hour complication, effectively taking the whole thing in-house, part Bulgari, part Gerald Genta, and assembled entirely with their own faculties. As over the years, it's not just Gerald Genta and Daniel Rolt that Bulgari has purchased. They purchased case builders, clasp builders, dial builders, able to build the entirety of the watch. So this 41 millimeter by retrograde jump hour in platinum with sunburst blue dial was entirely an in-house product and very compelling. A watch that to my eye is still the most interesting Bulgari of the Octo Finissimo era. It also keyed the revival of the Gerald Genta brand in 2020 when the Arena by Retro Sports watch was resurrected with the same running gear but a larger titanium case. I never thought I would see the Gerald Genta watches that I loved back during the 2000s available new with a warranty ever again, and 2019 Bulgari blew me away with that surprise. Okay, 2020, a couple of shocks that hit. Uh, the first one was from Tudor. Now, I have to admit, after endless iterations of the Black Bay, the Black Bay, the Black Bay Black, the Black Bay Bronze, the Black Bay 58, the Black Bay GMT, the Black Bay Chrono, many different materials, bezel colors and dial colors, I thought it was pretty much played out. And I also thought that after the P01, they might be interested in exploring the expansion of, Bul of uh, Tudor beyond the Black Bay collection. And while they've always added watches at the margins in the other collection, there's no doubt that the Black Bay is the watch that built the modern-day, relaunched International House of Tudor. And they shocked me with something new. The Black Bay 58 925, a sterling silver taupe-dialed Black Bay 58 that was thin, fine, sterling silver, affordably priced at $4,400, and at least to my eye, the most attractive watch Tudor makes. Now, taupe as a color doesn't get the heart racing. It's not French racing blue, British racing green, or Rosa Corsa on a Ferrari. It's 
kind of a gray-brown fusion, the kind of thing you would expect to see on mid-level luxury purses. Not the dial of a high-end sports watch, but the taupe dial and bezel, along with sterling silver, blew uh, just basically blew my mind apart because Tudor found a way of mostly just changing the color and material of a played out watch and making it feel entirely new. And it was a revelation and I wanted it. And in a year when they also added a master chronometer Metas certified Black Bay and ceramic and a yellow gold Black Bay 58 with a green dial, the AG925 really was the most interesting watch. We'd seen sterling silver watches before, the bargain basement must de Cartier watches in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. We'd seen one-off oddballs from Dubé and Schaldenbrand and U-Boat, and every once in a while we would see the use of silver as a component of a watch case as on the FP Journe T30 Tourbillon, but it was for the most part something that mainstream brands just avoided. Silver in the early 20th century fell out of favor as a corrosion-resistant white metal low-cost alternative to gold when Staybrite became available in the 1920s and 30s, and especially once watch and jewelry grade Staybrite became available in the 1940s. So to see a mass-market watch in silver absolutely shocked me. The fact that I loved it, 4400 bucks, precious metal, a new model, and the most appealing version of the Black Bay. It's worth reminding us that the Black Bay 58, which came out in a conventional style for 2018, took everything we loved about the pre-in-house ETA-powered Black Bays and brought it back in a case size that's more representative of the 1950s Tudor and Rolex Submariners that the Black Bay honors. R remember, the Black Bay is supposed to recall the chapter ring, big crown, no guard, Tudor and Rolex subs of the 50s. It's supposed to recall watches like the first Tudor Submariner of 1954, the 7922, and Rolex no guard subs of the same period, like the 5538 and 5536, that shared the same basic case. And the problem was, although we got in-house calibers starting in 2016, they made the watches fat, and the sweet thinness of the ETA-powered Black Bays went away. We got longer power reserves, chronometer certifications, silicon hairsprings, and in-house movements, but we got big, chunky, blockish watches that were at a severe disadvantage aesthetically and ergonomically compared to the in-house rivals from Rolex. Well, with the Black Bay 58, Tudor made the watch 39 millimeters instead of 41 or 43 like the other Black Bays. And they shrunk the sizing down to around 12 millimeters in thickness, a little bit less in fact, uh, thanks to a new movement. The 5400 series, whereas the standard 5600 series Tudor in-house caliber is 31.8 millimeters in diameter, the 5400 is 26. And whereas the standard 5600 is about 6.5 millimeters thick, the 5400 series is 4.99, which means that even with the new for 2021 display case backs, and they were new for 2021, and don't get me started on it, but even with the thicker display case backs, uh, all the Black Bay 58s managed to be thin and, and competitive in size and thickness 
with Rolex watches to the point where I don't understand why you would buy, unless it's for the bracelet, a no-date sub in 2022 when the Tudor Black Bay 58 925 is available. Now, I will pick one nit. I don't love the display case backs. I think Tudor movements, any Tudor movements, are crude. These Kinesi power plants, and they're made by Tudor subsidiary called Kinesi, uh, they look very industrial. The finish is not just mechanical, but it's mechanical, crude, and unsuited to the eye. So I would gladly take back half a millimeter or maybe three or four tenths of a millimeter of case thickness, throw a solid sterling silver case back on this watch, give me more precious metal and less thickness, and double down on what the Black Bay 58 does so well. Make it thinner and make the 925 even more sterling silver. I love this watch. And if I ever buy a Tudor, it's going to be the Advisor with the Cognac dial, or it's going to be the Black Bay 58 925. Now, moving forward to another watch that came out, this is from a brand we rarely discuss, Schwarzetien. What I can tell you about Schwarzetien is that it's a brand that's been around for a long time, but its modern history starts in 2001 when an uh, attempt to revive the company as a brand in its own right led to a resolution to start acquiring the ability to make parts in-house, movements, escapements, hairsprings, balances, and to do engineering on movements in-house. So Schwarzetien, which was mostly known for building watches, white label for retailer branding or for other watch brands, Schwarzetien slowly built up the capacity to make its own watch. But a lot of the watches were too large or too thick or the designs were idiosyncratic and polarizing until the Schwarzetien Roma Synergy by Kerry Voodelainen. Now, the thing you need to know about Kerry Voodelainen is that in addition to being one of the best independent watchmakers in the world and an AHCI member in good standing, he is an empire builder. Do not for a moment think that because he is the most soft-spoken man at SIHH that he doesn't have huge ambition and pride. And we've seen the expression of that recently with his acquisition of Urban Jürgensen. He wants to be able to sell hundreds to thousands of watches per year, not the dozens he currently sells under the Kerry Voodelainen name brand. As a result, he has also done parts supplier deals through Camblemine Quetrin, which is his dial factory, and Voodelainen et Quetrin, which is his case factory. He also does engineering and white label work on the side, but all of this came together with the Schwarzetien Roma Synergy, taking Schwarzetien's ability to build a watch, the movement, the assortment, the tough parts like hairsprings and balances, and combining that with Kerry Voodelainen's willingness to work with collaborators on contract and his ability to fabricate parts. So unlike the standard Roma, which is 42 millimeters, the Roma Synergy is 39. They made two different versions, each in 50 pieces, gray dial and blue dial. Each dial is made by Comblemine Quetrin, and it's made of sterling silver. It is cut three different ways on a rose lathe. You have soleil, or sunburst, you have écaille de poisson, or fish scale, and then you have vague, or wave, for the small second subdial. So sterling silver, traditionally galvanized, rose lathe cut manually in a 39 millimeter steel case made in a limited edition. And here's, here's the off menu secret. 
the secret menu, if you will, you can get full custom on this watch. And if they, you want additional examples beyond the 50-50, they will make them for you. And Carrie will galvanize the dial any color you like. Multiple colors, bright colors, green perhaps. Everything is possible as full custom is on the table for this model. Again, off menu for those in the know. Now turn the watch over. You've got a handmade guilloche sterling silver carry Voudelain and dial, but he has also turned his rose lathes loose on the ASC 200 automatic caliber inside the watch. Now it's a micro rotor automatic with a precious metal micro rotor finished three different ways by Atelier Voudelain. All of the bridges have been cut using a lovely rosette pattern, guilloche, on the rose lathe. All of the edges of the bridges have been manually beveled to a mirrored shine traditional anglage. Black polished screw heads and a lovely rose gold nameplate by Atelier Voudelainen. It is an 84-hour automatic winder. It has hacking seconds, every technical refinement you could want, but the piece de resistance is the ratchet wheel. The ratchet wheel features three different finishes. One, we'll start from the inside and work our way out. A black polished screw surrounded by a concave black polished well at the center of the wheel. Move outboard and the most exquisite solarization you've ever seen, a lovely matte solarization manifest manifests itself on the outer circumference of the wheel, then get to the teeth of the ratchet wheel, tiny parts that most brands, even most haute de gamme brands like Vacheron or Longa will ignore. But on this watch, Atelier Voudelainen has beveled them at the micro level. I can't imagine the time invested in just this ratchet wheel, but it's exquisite. And this watch, which is Schwarzetien, Kari Voudelainen, and a hint of Philippe Dufour's simplicity, all of it handcrafted. This watch retails for under $30,000. And that was the most recent and shocking new model release that caught my eye. Now, there are other great watches, don't get me wrong, but in terms of absolutely blowing away my expectations and changing my perception of its manufacturer, the Schwarzetien Synergy, Roma Synergy, was the watch that represents the standard. Something will have to move the ball beyond this to surprise me even more and reset my expectations for what a fine dress watch can be in 2022. Thanks so much. Again, reach out to me at mondaymailbag at thewatchbox.com to send your wrist shots to me for inclusion on my Monday show, Watches Tonight. Thanks again, and you can always find me on the web at Watchbox Reviews or Watchbox Studios on YouTube. Time out, Tim out, and thanks for logging on.